to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by food pioneer Isha Dattar. She's the CEO of New Harvest, a research institute that funds and conducts open and public research that reinvents the way we make animal products without animals. Yes, meat grown in labs. I first learned of it as in vitro meat, but it's also been called clean meat or cultured meat, and Tatar herself coined the term cellular agriculture in 2015. It also goes well beyond meat. Datar is a co-founder of companies making milk without cows and eggs without chickens. And with degrees in cell and molecular biology and in biotechnology, she's been at the forefront of a potentially transformative change to our food systems. Isha, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me. I have followed New Harvest's work since I was an undergraduate student at Queen's and I have long thought that there was great potential for addressing the suffering of animals and of addressing climate change if we can get this right. But for the uninitiated, what is cellular agriculture? Great question. A lot of people aren't initiated because this word only came up in 2015. (laughs) So cellular agriculture is the production of agricultural products from cell cultures instead of from whole plants or animals. So essentially the idea that we could be growing things like meat, milk, and eggs from cells instead of from animals. Knowing what it is 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 one thing, but knowing the potential to address serious issues of our time is another. And how how can cellular agriculture play a significant role in addressing animal suffering and tackling climate change? Well, the reason why we want to grow foods from cells is so that we can move away from relying on animals to produce food for us and all kinds of other things, weather, et cetera. And the reason why we want to move away from animals is because animal agriculture is really unsustainable. It has an enormous environmental impact. Uh, 70% of all agricultural farmland is dedicated towards raising animals. And if you think about that, it means we're raising food to feed to animals which then get slaughtered, et cetera, and fed to us. So it's not the most efficient use of calories in the world. And it's also the cause of global pandemics. I mean, a lot of animal agriculture, when you have animals in such close quarters with one another, it's a very easy place for viruses to mutate and affect humans. And I think a lot of us don't want to have to kill an animal in order to survive (laughs) off of its flesh. And I know there are a lot of people who don't necessarily care about the welfare of animals, but I think a lot of us could say that if we could choose between a hamburger that came from an animal that was not slaughtered versus a hamburger that came from an animal that was slaughtered, we probably would choose the one that did not include slaughter. So there's a lot of benefits to pursuing this. And we've been growing all kinds of things from cells for a very long time. In the biomedical space, of course, we've been growing things like insulin uh, using cell cultures, rennet that is used to make cheese, used to make the curds and whey. That has been produced mostly by microbes instead of from calf stomachs for at least the past 20 to 30 years and is now how most cheese is made. So we are already consuming a lot of cell culture products. They're just not marketed to us directly. So this, I think, is a real evolution for agriculture. I suppose it's transformative, but I think it's a very natural transformation. I remember first following the possibility of what was then in vitro meat, and it was always really expensive for a burger or for whatever the big headline was that this product was finally going to be eaten for the first time. 
the cost of doing so was incredibly expensive. And so how likely is this potentially breakthrough transformative technology? How likely is it to come to market in our lifetimes? That's a great question. It kind of depends what we're talking about specifically. Things like producing milk proteins from cell cultures is already out there. Back in 2014, before we even created the word cellular agriculture, uh, we co-founded a company called Perfect Day Foods, which is making milk proteins from cell cultures. And they just launched an ice cream last year. And they are putting that ice cream you can buy not at the store, you can buy it online, but you can consume milk proteins made without cows today. Things like meat are a little bit further into the future, but I think it's on the continuum of very certain that it will exist. Will it be cost effective and will we all be able to purchase it? That is a little bit of an open question still. You know, when is the cost going to come down? When are we going to see it on supermarkets? That's dependent on so many things beyond just technological advancements that relies on regulatory advancements that relies on governments supporting large scale research so that cellular agriculture can become a discipline that's as established and well known as food science and meat science is today. Right now, we're kind of this rogue group of researchers who are doing stuff in labs surrounded by a lot of researchers who aren't doing cellular agriculture. So it's a, it's a pretty niche field right now, but I think with acceptance and support from the broader scientific community, funding community, et cetera, I think this is very inevitable and could happen in the next 10 to 20 years in a very meaningful, impactful way. And I came to the issue because I care about ending suffering for animals initially and thought, well, maybe we don't convince everyone to eat plant-based food and plant-based meat alternatives, although those have advanced very quickly in my lifetime from when I was growing up vegetarian and people would point at the Eve's veggie burgers or veggie hot dogs and think, really, that's the alternative to now Beyond Meat has IPO'd. And there's obviously a strong consumer demand for alternatives to traditional meat. But there's going to always be a segment of the population that doesn't want to eat plant-based alternatives and giving them the real alternative that just doesn't harm animals and harm our environment seems to make intuitive sense if we if we can make it happen. How, how is it that you came to this issue and, and to become involved in cellular ag- agriculture? So I grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which I know I don't have to say on this podcast, but I do on all the American ones. <laughs> but I grew up in Edmonton. I went to the University of Alberta doing a cell biology degree. And in my last year, I decided to take a meat science class entirely because I saw a poster on the wall for it. And I thought, this is biology too. Like, why don't we ever get to learn about food or anything in like the faculty of science? So I took this graduate level meat science course and my professor, Dr. Mirko Betty, who's still a poultry science professor at the U of A, introduced me to the idea of growing meat from cells. And I was just like, this is clearly so obvious. There is such an enormous impact that animals have on the world. Oh, and by the way, he also showed me the impact of animal agriculture. I mean, I'm, I've grown up a meat eater. I still actually am a meat eater. And when I learned about the impact of animal agriculture in these kind of first few classes, I was like, okay, we all have to become vegan. That's clearly the only <laughs> answer. And in a matter of weeks, I was like, that's not going to happen. My dad, for example, his mom is vegetarian. We come from a lot of vegetarians who move to North America and start eating meat. And people want to eat more meat around the world, generally speaking. And 
you know, vegetarianism, alternatives, these things are all thousands of years old. The message of not eating animals is thousands of years old. And I, as someone very new to the idea that we should do this, don't, didn't think I could really contribute to people becoming vegetarian. You know, there's lots of people around the world who are doing a great job of that. So I was kind of like, okay, I don't know what to do. This is really depressing. I thought me biking to school in Edmonton was a meaningful action, but actually meat eating is so much worse. And what are we going to do about it? And then when he introduced the idea of growing meat from cells, it was just like a light bulb moment. This is clearly the next step. How do we move this forward? And I was shocked to see that there was so little research on this happening around the entire world. And I reached out to New Harvest at the time. Um, his name was Jason Messini. I had written a huge term paper about cultured meat and sent him my, my term paper. And he emailed me back and cited 10 scientists who I had cited in my paper. And they were all responding to my email about my paper. Oh, this is so great. You should add this comment. And like, not only was the subject matter super cool, but the scientific community was just accepting all members, <laughs> no matter... They didn't ask me who I was, how old I was, where I came from or anything. And I really loved that too. I thought that was one of the beautiful aspects of science is that it's about the work. So I basically fell in love with the idea of growing meat from cells and wanted to figure out how to make it happen. So I went to the University of Toronto after that. I did a master's of biotechnology, which is a super unique, interesting degree, which is like an MBA, but just for a biotech industry. And while I was there, I learned that biotech is about the interaction of nonprofits, for-profits, and academia. And like, that's how you advance such crazy science. And so I've, I've used that at New Harvest to support the work that we do. We are a nonprofit. We have had a hand in forming a lot of companies and helping a lot of entrepreneurs but we fund research at universities. And today we have over 20 researchers at universities all around the world dedicated to growing meat from cells. And from when you started to where we are now, while you say some products are coming to market now, others are a longer ways away, how much progress have we seen in the last decade or, or since you've become involved? We've seen all progress in the last decade. I mean, in 2013 was this first cell-cultured burger tasting. And sure, they had there had been technically tastings of cell-cultured meat before then, but it was always like super tiny, super prototypical type of things that a researcher was tasting. And this hamburger was similar to that too, in that it was created in an academic scientific lab. And it was a very small amount and it cost hundreds and thousands of dollars. But it was a huge media event. And after that happened, a lot of people around the world had heard of the idea of growing meat from cells before. It was not long after that that we founded the company Perfect J, working on milk proteins made in cell culture. We also created a company called Clara Foods, making egg proteins in cell culture. And after that, people started to realize that this was really real. And so we saw um, new cultured meat companies pop up between 2015 and now. And I'd say there's over 50 cell cultured meat companies around the world now. And we did a, a little calculation recently that over a billion dollars has been put into cell cultured food companies around the world. So this is all happening within the past five years. I think the growth has been enormous, but the market and the problem and what we need to do is so much bigger than that. So it's a great start. 
we need to move forward from here. And I have a lot of ideas for how if that's something you're interested in hearing about. On that particular point, we've seen the private sector step up with significant financing for some companies. I just watched Meet the Future and Memphis Meets received, I think, over $20 million in initial financing, including from major players in the food industry like Tyson, including significant names, at least like Bill Gates. How much is government still required to step in and support this kind of research instead of saying, here's a market opportunity, the private sector is able to finance this? Good question. I'm going to give just a little tiny bit of background, which is, you know, the way biotech normally is funded, all the way from discovery research, where we know nothing to knowing something, all the way to something on the market. The first third of all biotech innovations is funded by the public. What It's usually government and could be some philanthropy. The final third is funded by VC. And the middle is that valley of death that everyone talks about, like how do we translate more research out of universities? In CELAG, the valley of death extends all the way to the research side. And so we have over a billion dollars on the last third of the research. But the really groundbreaking innovative discovery work that should be funded by governments is completely barren. And really, New Harvest is, you know, was the first academic funder really focused on this. There were some small government grants in countries like the Netherlands and Singapore and Israel, which are all very small countries who need to make as much food as they can on a very small piece of land. So I, I get why those are the countries that have started investing in this. But we haven't really seen the significant kind of support that we would need to see for this to become a real economic engine. And I think that putting dollars into this research is a huge opportunity for whatever country chooses to do that. And I actually think Canada in particular is very, very well positioned to do this work because the institutional knowledge that we have here, you know, we have agricultural excellence and biomedical excellence in the same universities often. That doesn't happen in the United States. Canada also grows a lot of the supply crops, the feed crops that might go into some of these cell cultures. So that's another interesting piece. And also we have a great innovation community. And I think there's a lot of opportunity here. And from the government perspective, we've seen $153 million from the federal government in a plant-based food supercluster. We've seen an additional $100 million investment in a plant-based food company out West. We've seen, I think it was just over $10 million for a cricket farm through a sustainable technology fund through Innovation Canada. And so there's at least already a number of different initiatives from the federal government identifying food policy and climate policy as a focus of this government. And this would be an extension of that, presumably. Yeah, I think making investments into companies is a great way to keep your finger on the pulse. But if you really want to drive innovation, drive an economy, make sure that economy stays in the country, you should fund research. I I mean, the government should fund research here because it's a natural next thing to do to get more invested. And you didn't mention this because it's not directly the government, but the Canada Pension Plan just led a Series B for Perfect Day Foods milk proteins. That was a $300 million raise, which is one of the, if not the biggest raise I've seen in cellular agriculture so far. And from a group that is more institutional and less like a VC, exactly. So that's a huge faith in this technology. And I thought that was also kind of an interesting 
thing for Canada to do because Canada has such a powerful dairy industry. So what I hope, you know, I'm reading between the lines and kind of forcing a message here, but what I hope is being said there between the lines is that this is the dairy industry. It's not challenging the dairy industry. It's a new version of it. Following from that, we did see in the United States, at least, when the US FDA started looking at the regulatory environment for what was initially described as clean meat. And then there was pushback already from the Cattlemen's Association there and and maybe others to say, well, you can't call it meat. Do you see a pushback from agricultural producers in, in other ways? Do they see this as an existential threat? You know, it's interesting because the perception of threat kind of depends on the the farmer. I mean, obviously, farmers are individuals who have their own individual opinions. But if I were to pick out a trend, I think it's cattle producers that are the most opposed. And that's because I think cattle farming and ranching is probably the most nostalgic type of farming. It looks the nicest. It's probably the most fun. It's, It's literally animals on the land, whereas people who farm chickens which is very high throughput, high density, you are definitely aware that a chicken is essentially a vessel for growing meat in. Chicken producers seem to be pretty okay with the idea of cultured meat. I mean, this is just like a broad strokes looking at stuff, but that's what I've seen. And it's a mixed bag. And I think it kind of depends on a lot of factors, one being the animal that is being farmed. And two, what is the farming environment like in your country in the world? And how much do you see how much climate change, for example, is affecting your farm? We see so many headlines of tens of thousands of cattle being wiped out overnight due to some rogue storm or, you know, the rising heat in places causing there to be a longer kind of insect season and a lot more bugs biting the animals. Like there's a lot of problems, you know, hitting animal agriculture right now. And, you know, we could think of sal ag as bad for animal agriculture, or we could think of it as the way to perpetuate eating meat in a world where farming animals is going to become increasingly hard because of climate change and pandemics. I also wonder when it, when it comes to this so-called yuck factor, already industrial animal agriculture is pretty off-putting if anyone looks behind their dinner plate. And cricket farming doesn't sound all that appealing either. And and there's been financing for that as a potential alternative source of protein. When it comes to cellular ag, obviously a cut of steak is unlikely in the near future. But some of the poorest kinds of meat, whether it's your McDonald's meat or anything fast food related or ground beef or chicken nuggets, surely we're closer to that kind of replacement. Well, I wouldn't call them poorest kinds of meat because they're still really good. Very high quality product goes into ground chicken nuggets and burgers and whatever. I think what's different between that and steak is that it's already been kind of the texture has been taken out because you're grinding something up and mincing it up. And that means that when you're growing it in cell culture, you don't need to worry about that 3D structure, which is really hard to do in cell cultures. It's, it's a very interesting scientific question. So definitely ground products are going to be among the first that we'll see, but I do think we'll see more structured products in the future. And I also think we should step away from the idea that plant-based and cell ag are discrete completely separate categories because it's very likely that we're going to see a lot of hybrid products that are 
some cell cultured elements and some plant-based elements. And actually Perfect Day Foods ice cream, for example, that's some cell cultured milk proteins and some plant-based fats. Or Impossible's burgers, cell cultured heme protein, which turns from red to brown when you cook it. And then a lot of plant-based products makes up kind of the bulk of the patty. So, you know, we're going to see really interesting products just by combining those technologies, even before we get to like a 3D cell cultured steak. And I imagine the same thing with cheese, where one challenge with vegan cheese has been the soft cheeses made from nuts are quite good. Melted cheese has been a greater challenge. But as soon as you enter into a hybrid world, it becomes more doable. And really, the remaining challenge is cost on all fronts. Yes, <laughs> cost is a, is a challenge for everything. And that's probably because this is still tech. It's still R&D. And R&D takes a lot of time, takes a lot, a lot of effort. There's no kind of like real supply chain for your supplies. There's no scaling up of materials and bringing down a price or anything. So it's going to be expensive. But I think that that price can come down as the field matures. I also think it's important for us to realize that the price of animal products that we buy on the market, like hamburgers and sausages and so on, are pretty subsidized. The feed is subsidized, the farms are subsidized to some degree. And so what we're paying is not the actual cost of production. And if cell ag products were subsidized like that, we probably would be a lot more competitive. Or if we internalize the negative externalities associated with climate change and animal welfare, current meat would be incredibly expensive and, and probably out of reach for, for many. From the federal government's point of view, a focus on R&D potentially and taking maybe existing investments that we've made in plant-based foods and saying, well, this is an extension of a One Health approach to tackling climate change, to tackling potential future pandemic risks, also for the sake of animals. But when it comes to R&D funding, would you be looking at a specific fund through Agriculture Canada for R&D for cell ag, and then it would be up to researchers from various universities to apply for that funding? Or would it be flowing funds through a New Harvest Canada? Or how do you, knowing what you know about the ecosystem for cellular ag, what's the best way in your view of delivering dollars from the federal government to be it companies or researchers? A lot of the skills and talent and type of technical expertise you need to pursue cellular agriculture comes from the biomedical field. So these are researchers who have worked with large-scale cell culture, has worked with tissue engineering, has worked with animal cells before. But of course, the application is in food and agriculture. And so, you know, we wouldn't probably wouldn't want to disseminate the opportunity through agricultural funding mechanisms because then the biomedical audience might not be paying attention. And you might not want to funnel it through the biomedical space because the biomedical researchers often are focused on medical applications of their research and tend to be, you know, relatively well funded. So this is where New Harvest comes in. You know, we've identified all these really interesting kind of systemic problems that prevent cellular agriculture from advancing. And we've designed our research program in order to address these various research gaps by funding researchers. A lot of them tend to be from the biomedical space, but there are some people you know, who are applying machine learning techniques to media development or looking at cell cultured seafood or looking at creating bioreactors. You know, there's all these different elements to producing cultured meat. 
And we're funding those researchers in their labs. And we're also fostering a lot of collaboration. So all of our researchers must be collaborating with one another so that we create this like engine of R&D. I think the best way for the federal government to support this, and of course, I'm going to toot my own horn, but I mean, we've (laughs) been the leading organization in this space since it began. I think a great way to get started is to support New Harvest. We're creating a New Harvest Canada right now as we speak, and New Harvest can go ahead and do the heavy lifting of finding the researchers in Canada, creating the first scientific network supporting it with the support they need, which is not just dollars. It's, it goes beyond writing checks. It's, it's like hands-on collaboration work. And that's a great way for us to get started. And I really do believe that Canada has a lot of promise when it comes to pushing the science forward and becoming a leader in it. And I take your point about hybrid products. And probably it's fair to say as of today that plant-based meat alternatives have captured people's attention and are ready for market in a way that clean meat or cellular ag is not yet. But from my perspective, at least, it makes sense to leave no stone unturned. And really, when you're looking at a pretty modest amount of funding required to make a a significant difference, what would be the amount that you think could make a difference in the Canadian context? If we took the industry from essentially five people to 500 people, and I'm not saying only New Harvest did this, but we were definitely the first in the ecosystem and took a very ecosystem approach. We got this far in a $5 million for the whole time. You know, very little money, very smart uh, applications of funding in order to kind of elevate people who are committed to the space long-term And they all each had like a multiplicative effect in hiring people and raising their own money and so on. So I think we could do a lot with $5 million in the next three to five years. I think we could really get a Canadian innovation engine for SELAG going and kind of see where we are at the end of that. $5 million isn't a ton for research, but it's enough to be really thoughtful in creating like a prototype for innovation and go from there. And in the grand scheme of tackling climate change, it is a drop in the bucket in the Canadian context. I just read a plan that was calling for $110 billion over 10 years as as just one example. Well, Isha, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your advocacy. As I say, I've been following New Harvest since undergrad. And so (laughs) I've been getting the email newsletters and notifications. And it's been interesting just to see it become more of a publicly known kind of research and that there seems to be a growing, not only growing body of research, but growing support for this kind of work in the upper echelons of the private sector when it comes to investment, and hopefully when it comes to governments as, as we move forward. Yeah, and I, ha- I have one more thing, if you will entertain it, which is that I am so happy to be back in Canada again. You know, COVID was the prompt to bring me back from New York to Edmonton, but it's so nice to be here. And, you know, the week I came back, one million Canadians repatriated. I don't know how many of those Canadians are working for other companies and working out of their Canadian bases right now. I don't know how many were students and so on. But I think that that repatriation of Canadians is one of the biggest economic opportunities that Canada has ever seen. And that there could be really simple ways to make sure that Canadians who are earning foreign income stay here people like me, it wouldn't take much in terms of little nudges for us to be able to put down on paper, like, yes, I'm, I'm here now. I'm not going back. I'm not looking for like the quickest flight back. 
that's another thing I want to flag is there's so much innovation that has returned in, in the form of human capital Canadians who are really happy to be here. And I, I think that that's an important opportunity to keep an eye on. It's a good point. And you would continue working with New Harvest US or you would you would want to focus your efforts solely on New Harvest Canada? Since the New Harvest US is international in scope, I see them as kind of the same, but I would love to hire Canadians and develop New Harvest Canada and focus on Canada-specific solutions for what we're doing. Our research is international in scope, but our, you know we showed up to these FDA, USDA meetings. That's all American stuff. I'd love for us to have some staffing to focus on those conversations in Canada too. So I'm going to be running both of them, which sounds like double the work, but it's not. <laughs> it's going to just be extending into a new a new place. Well, I appreciate your time. And I appreciate the work that you are doing. And hopefully this is a reality sometime, sometime in the near future. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Nate. It was a pleasure. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca. And please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 